0: is like this. A man sowed good seed in his field. One night when everyone was asleep an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the plants grew and the heads of grain began to form, then the weeds showed up. I'll explain that in just a minute. The man's servant came to him and said, Sir, It was good seed you sowed in your field. Where did the weeds come from? It was some enemy who did this, he answered. Do you want us to go and pull up the weeds? They asked him. No, he answered, because as you gather the weeds, you might pull up some of the wheat along with them. Let the wheat and the weeds Both grow together until harvest, and then I will tell the harvest workers to pull up the weeds first, tie them in bundles, and burn them, and then together in the wheat and put in my barn. We skip down a few verses, and Jesus now interprets the parable. When Jesus had left the crowd and gone indoors, his disciples came to him and said, Tell us what the parable about the weeds in the field means. Jesus answered The man who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the people who belong to the kingdom. Do you belong to the kingdom? That's a good question. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. And so the enemy who sowed the weeds is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvest workers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered up and burned in the fire, so the same thing will happen at the end of the age. That's what I'm telling you, that it's about the kingdom as it is now, and the kingdom as it's going to be someday. The Son of Man will send out His angels to gather up. Out of his kingdom all those who cause people to sin and all others who do evil things and they will throw them into the fiery furnace where they will cry and gnash their teeth and then God's people will shine like the Sun in their father's kingdom listen then if you have ears we have questions about the kingdom of God and what does it really mean And you have to have first an understanding that the kingdom of God is used in different ways in Scripture so every time you see the kingdom of God it doesn't necessarily in that passage in that application mean exactly the same thing every time else it was found. So one thing that the kingdom of God means is everything that God rules. What does God not rule? He rules everything. So in one sense, in one way in which the kingdom of God is used, it refers to everything. Here in this parable Jesus said the field represents the world. So in one sense, in the universal sense when we talk about the kingdom of God sometimes we're talking about everything under God's rulership everywhere. But then there's a limited sense in which the kingdom of God Is used and that limited sense also Jesus mentioned is the wheat are those who belong to the kingdom so the kingdom parable Jesus says here's what the kingdom of God is like but then he also narrowed in on it and said but only those who are wheat the good belong to the kingdom yet within the entire universal scope of of what God rules, there's weeds. Now you cannot make this parable, the kingdom of God, the church. It doesn't work. Some people have tried to make it the church. And the uh, rules that govern the activity of the kingdom of God don't necessarily govern the church. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. I don't want to get ahead of myself. And in this parable Jesus paints a picture of a man who has a field that he personally sowed with good seed. Now when you're looking for grass seed if you just want to sow your lawn you want to buy probably a good quality grass seed that has a very minimum, it'll say on the label, it'll say on the ingredients Uh, what is in there and less than 1% of the kind of wild weed seeds that don't belong there or a a small percentage that if, if you choose to live with that then you're getting a good quality seed a cheap seed might have a lot of things in there you don't want in there and so you sow it and things come come cropping up that you didn't intend to sow so this man sowed his field he was confident that the seed he put into the field was good seed and his servants were shocked that whenever it started to come up there was weeds among it. It was not like anything that they typically would expect from this farmer and they come to him with their concerns. There's weeds in the field. We know you sowed good seed. How did this happen? And the farmer responds, an enemy of mine has done this. Now there were Roman laws prohibiting people from Infecting somebody else's field with weed seeds. It was a crime to do that. So when Jesus shared this parable, in this culture, they related to it. They understood how this could happen. Somehow, sometimes, perhaps, did happen. Somebody could put, maliciously put, weed seeds in somebody's field it could be pranksters because pranksters love to do destructive things like that. It could be an enemy with an axe to grind somebody who wants to get back at this farmer for a totally different issue and they're deciding I'll get him, I'll sneak into his field and I'll sow weeds, that'll teach him. So there's, there's reasons, motivations why somebody unscrupulously may have done this but the fact remains it could happen and laws said if you're caught then there's trouble. This is illegal to do that. They understood this whole story because it was real. It was applicable to them. The first point I want to make is the kingdom of God now and I'm going to marry these two concepts together the kingdom of God now the kingdom of God future and also the, the three characters in here. So I'm going to blend them all together so I can have my own Uh, homogenized outline Uh, the kingdom of God now wheat and tares right now in the kingdom of God share the same field Uh, and understanding what the kingdom of God is helps us to understand this concept in the sense that we the church are not the kingdom of God but we're a part of the kingdom of God in a limited sense because we are children of the kingdom but in a broader sense we're also part of the kingdom but not exclusive. Because everything that God rules over we're a part of. So we're not just limiting this to the church because we're only a part of the kingdom. Now sometimes we have unrealistic expectations in God's kingdom. That's where we begin to get troubles. What do we expect God to do? How convenient do we want our lives to be in living for him? We don't understand the differences between the two aspects of the kingdom. So sometimes when we begin to think of the church as really being represented in these kingdom parables, then we get this wild idea that what we need to do is we need to weed out the weeds in the church. Or we need not weed out the weeds in the church. Well, if, if we follow the parable, the landowners, the, the, the servants said, let's, let's do it. Let's weed out the weeds. And the landowner said, Don't do that. I don't like the destruction that will take place. So, do you deal with weeds in the church or not? You, you won't find your answer from this parable. You'll find your answer from the writings of Paul. So you have to deal sometimes with discipline within the church. The church is not dressed in, in, addressed in this parable whatsoever, so, which is what I meant when I said don't think that the church is synonymous with the kingdom of God, because the rules of the kingdom of God and the truths Jesus set forth for the kingdom of God, he was not applying to us as a church. So yeah, sometimes you have to do some weeding in the church. It's very it's very unpopular. Nobody enjoys. Discipline being executed in the church. And thank God we don't have to do that very often. I've had to do it very, very few times in my ministry. But the times that we do have to do that, it's, it's horribly difficult. Probably my earliest experience with trying to deal with weeds in the church was a personal experience I was going through. There was a, a, a girl and her sister who started attending our church that uh, she was uh, she was a bit of a loner. She was uh, a unique individual. But to me, I want to say it this way, I want to be very sensitive and cautious here, but to, to me as a, a young person... Uh, she was creepy. Now, if you'll allow me to say that, and, and not anybody try and take that out of context, she was creepy. And the reason I say that is because she actually became a stalker. For some reason, she had set her heart and her desire and her eyes on moi. And I was running from this creepy girl and she was running metaphorically to catch me and she became frustrated because I was not reciprocating with uh, her desires for my attention. So she wrote a, a letter, I wrote a note or something, wrote, and, and began to pass this around to whoever would give her the time of day, and not many did. And uh, it, it said that she was going to have my baby. Now you understand, when you're just a, a freshman, eighth grader, a freshman in high school, I think it was probably a freshman, it was in high school. And you got something like this going on, it was, it was highly upsetting to me. So uh, I, I'm like telling my dad, Dad, what are we going to do? I got this, uh, this girl that at school everybody knows she's creepy and she's going around saying she's, got, she's carrying my child. And it's just, this is not going to work for me. You know, this, uh, I, I really don't want to have to go to school and combat this. I sure don't want to go to church and have to deal with this there. Well, you know, they were forced to have to deal with this. And e- e- essentially, they got together and, and the bottom line is they asked the girl not to come back to church. They felt they were doing that to somewhat protect my character, my reputation, my integrity. But not everybody was in favor of that. And that, that really bothered me at the time too. There that, that was this crowd that was saying like, oh no, you can't be pulling up weeds you might pull up uh, wheat if you're going to be doing this. You don't have any business. Everybody needs to be welcome. We need to work through this. And so I'm just telling you that to tell you that people have divided opinions about how you go about discipline in the church. And no matter how legitimate it may or may not be, you're probably always going to have somebody that's going to disagree with the decision that's been made. Now in the kingdom of God, which is not the church, we're talking about this this whole thing that, that, that God rules, there are weeds and there is wheat. Now, you're going to have to come to a decision today about what you are. Are you wheat or are you weeds? That's, that's a, con- a question that's going to continue to demand an answer from you throughout this sermon, if not for the rest of the day and the rest of the week, I don't know, until you finally answer this and make peace with your own self. And the fact of the matter is, these unrealistic expectations of the kingdom is, should we put our efforts into trying to purify God's kingdom? Once again, our mind probably goes back to the church, should we put our efforts into making the church where just perfect people come. Now, not at all. We The church is more of a hospital than it is a gathering of believers. We've got the sick, we've got the wounded, we've got the imperfect and that's why we're here. But as long as we are all still trying to go the same direction and still trying to yield our hearts and our minds and our lives to Jesus Christ, we there's a lot we have to put up with. Now let's take it outside of the realm of the church and let's go into the broader kingdom of God as Jesus is trying to give us a, a lesson about the entire uh, a widened scope of the kingdom of God. Jesus claimed to be the way and the truth and the life. When he says this, you understand these are exclusive attributes. Because I will draw your attention to the fact that Jesus did not say, now there's many ways to God, and I am one way you can get there. There's many truths in the world, and I come representing one aspect of truth. Many ways to life, and I bring you one of many ways. He was exclusive in declaring, I am the way, the only way. I am the truth and the life. Nobody else can lay claim to any of those. No man comes to the Father except through me. It's exclusive. So this must have had this tremendous psychological impact on his disciples who were still trying to figure out who they were following and if it was legitimate for them to follow him and if they should continue to follow him and once in a while he made some very shocking claims that they had to try and process so this man that called them from fishing boats and from tax collection stations and from different walks of life he's, he's coming off of these these uh, outlandish claims that he tells them at one time there is no way, there is no truth, there is no life other than me I am it. And Psychologically they have to process that Who? what What kind of man are we following here? Either they had to buy into that 100% or they had to hold that in reservation. Say, ah, I'm not so sure I buy that. Kind of like some of his teachings but who is this guy to take uh, exclusive rights to the connection to God. So they had, they had to process that. Well, obviously some of them bought into it. They believed he was the way and the truth and life. So what do the disciples do now? They wrestle with this, this concept that the man they're following has claimed exclusive connection and entrance to God into the kingdom. And so because they believed that, because they embraced that, then they began to get a little bit protective of this. And what did they do when they saw people that looked like they were competing with Jesus? They wanted to stop them. Why? Because he's the way, the truth, and life. There is nobody else. They're all The rest of them are false. So there was a time when the disciples saw others trying to cast out devils in Christ's name. And they thought, well, he's the way and the truth of life, but he's not a part of our group. If he was a part of our group, he'd be legitimate. Where did they get this authority to do anything in Jesus' name if they're not here following us, following Jesus? So, they came back to Jesus, and they, in a very smug and bragging way, said, we saw people doing something in your name, but they're not part of us, so you'll be glad to know we stopped them. And Jesus said, "That's not. we don't do that. And they must have been shocked, thinking fully convinced they were doing the right thing, and Jesus rebuking them. Don't stop them. If they're casting out devils in my name, the kingdom might be bigger than you think it is. That's what I said, unrealistic expectations sometimes of the kingdom. We also saw one times when Jesus uh, went to uh, the Samaritan territory, and it, the Bible indicates that Jesus ultimately had his uh, intentions set on going on to Jerusalem, And the Samaritans, the Bible says, did not receive Jesus. And when the disciples saw that Samaritans did not receive him, remember what they did? They said, well, let's call fire down on them. If they don't like you, you're the way, the truth, and life. If they're rejecting the way, the truth, and life, let's just burn them all up. Now, that's the kind of attitude that they developed because they believed that Jesus was exclusively the way to God. There was no other way. And anybody who doesn't believe that, you might as well just go ahead and kill them. They're no use to this world anyway. Let's get rid of them. And see, when Jesus was teaching this parable and his disciples were listening, it was important for them to understand that the kingdom doesn't always meet our expectations. It certainly didn't meet the disciples' expectations when they wanted to purge the world of everybody who was not worthy. And Jesus said, we're not going to do that. That's not what we're here to do. So he had to stop them from prohibiting others from ministering. He had to stop them from killing everybody who didn't agree with them. And the reason is, is because the work of evangelism is not done. Just because somebody's initial response is, we don't follow them, we don't believe that. The work of evangelism is trying to reach the lost. And if the whole plan of Jesus was to take his disciples and go around and demand an instant answer from everybody, and everybody who said yes, join our team, and everybody who doesn't, let's kill them, you really, there's no evangelism left. You can cover the world pretty quick like that. But as long as there's life, as long as there's breath, there's always a chance for somebody changing their mind and turning around. Even those who initially said no might later say yes. We saw that in the last parable. Now the disciples were thinking, how much easier and more efficient this plan of evangelism would be if we could just wipe out the naysayers. But Jesus reminded them that the work of evangelism is going to be fraught with difficulties. He didn't call them to evangelism and tell them, now refine this process. Make it as easy and efficient as possible. He said, this is going to be some of the hardest work you've ever done trying to take the truth to the unsaved. He warned them, sometimes said, if you go into a town and they don't receive you, he didn't tell them, call fire down on them. He said, just shake the dust off your feet and go on. Sometimes you'll be received, sometimes you won't be received. But he said, the fact of the matter is, it won't always go as smoothly as you think it's going to go. You simply have to press through it. That was the application to his disciples. What does it mean to me? What does it mean to you here today? What is our contemporary application? Well first, it it answers questions that people may have about why evil continues in a world that belongs to God. And you've probably got friends who are struggling with that. I certainly have friends, I have relatives that struggle with this concept. If there is a God, why is there sickness? Why is there suffering? Why are little babies abused? Why uh, are people starving around the world? If there's a God, if this is His world, if He's in control, why should evil allow, be allowed to continue? Why do evil people do evil things under His watchful eye? Yeah, we ask that question. You may wonder from time to time unless you've got that settled. Now we just lost uh, America's pastor this week, Billy Graham he was asked that question many times in his ministry and he admitted that he really didn't have a good answer for it why is it? evil is allowed to continue and he struggled to find a good satisfactory answer for those who asked that question that's one reason that some people never want to really sell out to God because they cannot get past this Barrier, this obstacle of why should I serve a God that allows bad things to happen. But when Jesus presents this, he lays the case out and says, in the kingdom there are weeds and there's wheat. And anybody who thinks they're going to clean the field now, you're sadly mistaken. It's God's will that it continues like that until he takes care of it. Here's the reason why. Human beings mess up everything they try to do. And this landowner told his servants, don't go in there and try to straighten this out. Let it alone till harvest, then I will oversee that it'll be taken care of appropriately. Because, uh, number one, you have to know what you're doing if you're going to go in and separate tares from wheat. The first problem that would have to be overcome is knowing the difference between the two. And I don't know a lot about tares, it's the actual plant is the darnel, D-A-R-N-E-L, the darnel. And it does, I looked at the, I looked at the pictures, it does look very much like wheat, but it's not exactly like wheat. Uh, Amateurs like me could probably be fooled. I'm not an expert on the difference between darnel and wheat, so if some wheat farmer hired me, and told me, go out there and cleanse my field of all the darnel you find, I would cost him his business. I don't know the difference that good. Experts would know the the difference, but amateurs wouldn't, so I'd make a mess of it. Number two, the root system was so tightly entwined that when you went to pull weeds, you would uproot a lot of wheat. And so the farmer decided the best thing is don't go in and damage the wheat field trying to fix this now. I will fix it later. Well, the, you know, there's certain risks in allowing this to go on. The darnel is poisonous. When it finally it fruits out, the head comes into bloom. Then it turns black and it becomes very obvious at that point what the wheat is and what the tares are. What the weeds are. So you you get a better uh, uh, perspective of what you're working with. Don't pull anything except what has a blackened seed head on it. That solves that problem. Next, if you pull the wheat up, it's harvest time anyway. What did it matter? All you're gonna do is pull everything and sort out the good from the bad. So there's wisdom and logic in doing this the way the farmer wanted it done. In the application, of course, is we're living in a world that God allows weeds to be here. He's not saying it's the church's business to go pull the weeds in the world. He's saying that we just have to live with certain conditions here. That he's not going to trust us. With our lack of skills. To change the situation. said, just live with it. I will take care of it. Later. Second in our application is we should not be the sole arbiters of who is worthy to occupy the field. Therefore because we don't have the skills to purge the field we just have to leave it alone. Point number two. The wicked are going to be judged for what they have done. Nobody's getting away with anything. Those who say why Is it that God allows evil to continue? That's not justice. And if it's not justice, I have a hard time believing in God because a God of justice would never allow this to happen. Well obviously I I feel just as frustrated as you do when innocent children are are abused, kidnapped, murdered, whatever. I mean that's just one thing that gets to me like uh, I can't stand the thought of this. It's like, where is my my cape and my leotards? I want to go rescue. I wish I had these superpowers to rescue children from these wicked people that would do such things. But I can't do that. I don't have that power. I don't have the authority. And people wonder if God allows this to happen. Is there really a God? Maybe there is no God. Maybe maybe this world's just going on on an evolutionary track. And it's just survival of the fittest and uh, beast eating beast. It doesn't make sense that there's a God up there who is really truly guarding and watching over things yet he allows. Is he watching this child being abducted? Is he allowing this? What kind of God is that? We have to be content the fact nobody is getting away with anything every person every wicked person no matter what they've done in their life no matter how heinous every wicked person is going to be judged by God and the judgment was very briefly described in this parable as Jesus interpreted it's going to be the wheat separated from the tares the tares cast into the fire destroyed So there's going to come a reckoning day for every one of them. Yeah, but what about the suffering right here and now? That's the part we have to be able to trust God. That when it's all said and done, it's going to be just and it's going to be fair. Those who maybe have suffered now are going to have a reward later on that will be far beyond. Far beyond any suffering. It's not just going to even out, it's going to be more than when God takes care of it. Paul had something to say about this. Uh, The wicked not being immediately judged, but we know that wicked, wicked people need redeeming. Some notoriously wicked people have been rescued and redeemed for the work of the kingdom of God. What if they had been aborted immediately because of their wickedness? Paul wrote in the 6th chapter of 1st Corinthians. He said, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. And we've got a list here. I want you to listen carefully to the list. It's not a comprehensive list. It's an exemplary list. It just gives you an example of the kind of people that will not inherit the kingdom. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, Nor men who have sex with men. And by implication women who have sex with women. Nor thieves. Nor the greedy. Nor the drunkards. Nor slanderers. Nor swindlers. Will inherit the kingdom of God. Friends it doesn't get any more clear than that. There are certain things that we do. That you will not inherit the kingdom of God. As long as you do those things. You can't get saved and continue to do that. It's your act actions that will be judged. And even Paul himself, well, let me finish reading this. And Paul says, "They they won't inherit the kingdom of God, and he said, and that is, here's the slam dunk, that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. So sitting in that Corinthian congregation, were the people who used to be just like that. And Paul reminds them you were there one time. But God redeemed you. And that's what it's all about is redeeming those who are so hopelessly lost, so hard, so calloused, so evil, so wicked. And and Paul was formerly, he, he himself was a radical Pharisee. He was bent on destroying the movement Jesus had started. And he even gloated. Can you imagine the heart of this man as he watched Stephen being stoned to death. The Bible says he was consenting unto his death as they laid their coats at Saul's feet. And he thought, good enough for this guy. Dirty, filthy follower of Christ. And he was redeemed. And Paul realized what he used to be. He said, I was a blasphemer. I was injurious. I didn't know what I was doing. But God forgave him. That's the reason we have to wait and let God take care of this. Because everybody has a potential of being redeemed no matter how bad they are. In God's wisdom, he allows the tares to continue to grow just in case there's a conversion of somebody who once opposed him. For those who are wicked to the end, who never make a change, who never have a transformation in their life, they will stand before God and they will give an account for their behavior. And not one wicked tear in the wheat field will escape the sweep of God's judgment. The day's coming, but it's not here yet. Our duty is not to execute judgment. Now, our duty is not even to pray that Judgment Day hurries up and comes. Our duty is to survive and also to win others. Those even who are battling against the kingdom, our goal is to win them. Now Facebook is a window into people's hearts and souls. How many of you know that? How many of you have come to realize you learn things about people you would have never known had it not been for Facebook? I'm shocked at how many people in my friend group uh, talk about hurting those who hurt us. I've I've seen from time to time conversation about people who talk about heinous murderers and how they ought to be murdered. How the shooter uh, down in Florida from the past few days ought to be murdered himself. Let's kill the beast. And the examples go on and on because you know what I'm talking about anytime somebody is is a wicked, heinous sinner then you start seeing People who are talking about how we ought to do the same thing to them. I hope that the the child rapist goes to prison and he gets treated by the inmates just like he treated that child. Now, the world thinks like that. The Christians are not supposed to think like that. It was a sad day. It was a disheartening moment. Whenever one of the most popular television evangelists back in the 1980s and you'll probably figure out who it is had gotten so high on his own fame and his own success he could bring the people to their feet in shouting praise over anything he said he could work the crowd but I think the low point is, is exemplified illustrated by the time whenever he said I think drug dealers ought to be lined up against the world and shot in the head and I was shocked when the arena came to their feet and applauded and praised and shouted their approval and I thought dear God what is it coming to When in the kingdom, somebody says that we ought to wish for the execution and the death of those who are evil. We have gotten so far from the purpose of evangelism and the purpose of the the, the great commission and and the mission of Jesus when we want those who are wicked to die. I want them to get saved. I want them to proclaim the name of Jesus. I see people on on TV and on videos and in the news and 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 they are they are wicked wicked people, and they upset me by the things they believe and the things they say. But rarely do I ever see somebody like that that I don't think if I could just reach them for Jesus, if I could just. Get them in a relationship with God where their thinking is turned around and they get a biblical worldview instead of what they've got. What a testimony that would be to hear this mouth that is spewing venom and wickedness now suddenly singing the praises of Jesus Christ. That's what I think. It's not about killing people. It's about converting people. It's our job to keep it Christ-centered. The final point is this. The righteous are going to be rewarded. And there's this little short phrase at the end of Jesus interpreting this that is a, it's a very interesting wording. Having said that the wheat and the tares are going to be gathered in, the tares are going to be separated out and they're going to be burned, Jesus turns to the wheat, which we know the wheat represents the true children of the kingdom. And he says, God's people. Will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. You know, we don't need to make too much out of the particulars of that. What is "shine like the sun" I mean? It's just a phrase that expresses how great it's going to be when God begins to reward the faithful. That, that's really what it means. Don't try and break it down any farther than that. You cannot imagine how great the reward God has for those who are faithful to the end, for those that love him. We who have surrendered to God, we who have committed our lives to God, we are the wheat. We're living in a field that has some tares. Wickedness is around us, we know that. We know we can't cleanse this field and make it just Inhabitable for decent people. God does not give us that option. We know we're not to go around ripping up the weeds. We know we can't kill all the evildoers. We can't banish them from the world. There's no place to run, unfortunately. As wicked as the world is getting, and as rapidly as it is deteriorating, I just out of curiosity wonder, and you don't have to lift your hand. You don't even have to nod at me. You can look away if you want to. I just wonder how many of you like me have dreamed of an island somewhere that we could just take our family. I don't even know if you'd be welcome. Just take my family and and just go and, and and, and live a whole life and rescue my children from this sick world that we're in. So hell can't poison their mind. But there is no island I can afford. (laughs) There is no way to run. I'm stuck in this world. I am a wheat in the middle of a field that's got a lot of tears around it. I'm not always happy with that. But God said that's the way it's got to be. You can't just have your own little wheat field. It's not going to work that way. The trick is enduring to the end the enemy sows the weeds among the wheat why he hopes to destroy the wheat field he hopes to ruin the harvest you know why the weeds are around us because the enemy hopes to ruin you he hopes that even careless ambitious people will come along and try and tear the wheat the weeds up and in the process maybe take you along with it the enemy has all kinds of evil desires and intentions of how to poison you, how to discourage you, how to get you plucked up. The enemy wants to ruin the wheat field. Now understanding that, the wisdom of the landowner is, you can survive. I want this to wait until the end. I will take care of it. I think by application, what we have to understand is, no matter how difficult it is, God believes you can survive this. And as much as I want to take my family and run somewhere, God knows we can survive this. That's not going to happen. But it's going to take more than just wishing. It's going to take really putting your mind to training your children the way that they need to be trained. God will always have a people. There's nothing the enemy can do that will ruin his wheat field. He's going to have a harvest because he's in charge. This is God's field. He knows what the enemy has done. He knows why he has done it. But God determines, I will have a harvest. You're going to make it. You can't give up. You can't get discouraged. You have to survive the weed infestation. You have to be in this world, but you don't have to be of the world. And how many times have you heard that? The world we know has booked an express train to hell. And the enemy is giving away free tickets and recruiting passengers by the millions. You parents with young children, you know they're growing up in a messed up world. This world is so much more messed up than the world I grew up in, and I'm not not the one that messed it up. I'm doing my best to hold the sanity here. But you don't have to let your children be poisoned by the world. You'd better get a plan right now of how you're going to equip your children to be able to stand for God and against all the lies hell is throwing at them. You can't farm that job out to your babysitter. You can't farm that job out to your daycare director. You can't farm that job out to the schools. It is your job to make sure your children make it to heaven. Who else is going to do it if you're not going to? Train them. Teach them. Protect them against the fiery darts of hell. Tell them about heaven. Tell them about hell. Tell them about God. Tell them about Satan. Warn them about the lies and the propaganda that the world is pumping out before they hear it from the world. Tell them the truth of God. Tell them about the armor of God. As a matter of fact, get them some armor. Get them a helmet of salvation. Make sure they're going to wear it. Get them a sword of the Spirit. Make sure they carry it. Help them get a breastplate of righteousness. Equip your children. We have that at the bare minimum as our responsibility. Dress them for battle. We cannot afford to lose our kids to hell. Hell is on a campaign to win every one of them and ruin them and poison them and getting them to think Backward from everything that is true and righteous and biblical. And you cannot afford to give up that battle. You cannot afford to concede. You cannot afford to sacrifice your children. You must commit that this family is going to make it. You have to have that Joshua spirit. As for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. Now you do whatever you think you've got to do, Joshua said, but as for me and mine, we're committed to serving God. And there is a reward waiting for those who endure to the end. God's people shine like the sun in God's kingdom. I don't want to be a weed. (laughs) It's miserable enough being a wheat with a few weeds around us, but I sure don't want to be a weed. And I guess the question is, when it comes to the end, when you stand before God, have you been a child of the kingdom or not? Would you bow your heads?